All right, I think we still have a bunch of people out there, but we'll go ahead and get started and they'll trickle in and that'll be okay. Let's go ahead and pray and we'll jump into some church history. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your church, for your people, for uh, the, the great tradition of believers that have gone before us and we can look back to and uh, we know that you're the one who carried each one of them along. Um, you're the one who uh, drew them to yourself and uh, we thank you for who you are and we pray that we would be faithful to follow you and to, um, to be bold and to proclaim your word even if it is costly to us. God, we thank you again for your word and uh, just pray that you would speak to us today and help us to better understand where we came from and uh, where it is that we're going. Pray this in your name. Amen. All right. Joseph's got some handouts back there for people. Um, Joseph, if I need to be turned down, feel free. Um, but before we jump in and get started, I wanted to ask you guys, who is the, the first martyr that we come across in the New Covenant? Stephen. All right. Any objections to Stephen as a first martyr in the New Covenant? Depends on definitions. It does depend mightily on definitions, right? Um, Stephen is the first Christian who was martyred, right, in Acts 7. Um, that was pretty early on. That was right after the, the death of Christ. So you could argue that Christ was the first martyr. But um, if you define martyr as... Um, killing somebody for their religious beliefs, then Jesus doesn't quite fit the, the bill there, right? Because God was, um, he was happy to, to offer him up for the, the payment of sin. And Jesus, nobody took his life from him, but he laid down his life and he took it up again. We see that in John chapter 10. But then, as you mentioned, Andy, shortly after that, Stephen was martyred in 34 AD on Acts chapter 7. Another 10 years after that, James was martyred in 44 AD, and you can read about that in Acts chapter 12. And then another 10 years after that, uh, Philip was crucified and stoned, according to church history. And I'm sure you guys are well aware that all of the disciples were martyred in some way. They were killed for their faith, except for John, who, uh, again, church history tells us that he was um, he was. He was to be boiled in oil, and some people say that he was forced to drink poison, but he didn't die from that poison. He was exiled to Patmos, and um, he just died of old age. And today we're going to be learning about two of John's disciples, Ignatius and Polycarp, um, people that were directly impacted, directly taught by uh, John, the Apostle John. So it's kind of cool that we get to book back in and look at them. But before we do that, I want to kind of set the stage for us a little bit and look at um, the, the bigger picture of church history and try to figure out where we're at in church history. So looking at different periods of church history, we can um, break it up into three different segments primarily. Ancient church history is from the beginning of the church in around 30 AD to 590 AD. And a lot of people will just um, round that off, say the first 500 years of church history is ancient church history. And then after that, we have the medieval church history from 590 to 1517. And what happened in 1517? Why is that a, an important date? Uh, 
Yeah, Reformation. Good job. And again, people will often round that off from 500 to 1500 just to make it a little bit easier. That's medieval church history. And then modern church history, which most, people, most of us are the most familiar with, is from 1517 to the present age. And again, that's starting from the Reformation up until now would be what we would see as modern church history. Well, we're going to be in ancient church history throughout this church history series, and we want to break that down even a little bit farther. We can see in the first 100 years that um, this is the spread of Christianity throughout the, the Roman Empire. This is what we read about in the, the New Testament. The disciples, they were going out, they were fulfilling their mandate um, to, to be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth to uh, baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they were going out and they were doing that uh, quite successfully. And then secondly, in that time period, we see the struggle of Christianity to survive from 100 to 313 AD. And 313, um, that's when uh, Constantine comes along and he brings a, a little bit of relief to the, the persecution, but there's a, a great intensification of persecution within that, that period from 100 to 313. There was, as we just mentioned, persecution before, right? Jesus himself and Stephen and uh, Philip and the rest. Um, there was definitely persecution. There was persecution afterwards, but it's greatly intensified in those couple hundred year period. And then again, um, at 313, that's when the, the supremacy of the church, um, that's how we could label or understand that, that um, Constantine came in, he made things a, a little bit different for the Christians. He gave them some, some peace and some relief from some of the persecution they were going through. And it is that, that second period, the struggle of the of Christianity to survive that we've been focusing on, we're gonna to continue to focus on for the next couple of weeks in our study of church history. So persecution is nothing new to the church. The church has um, known persecution for, for quite a while. Again, it's just intensified during this period. Uh, can you think of instances in the New Testament where persecution is promised? We're told to look forward to persecution, to expect persecution. Any passages come to your mind? All right, good. Anybody else? If they have hated me, they will hate you also. Yes, amen. And there are several throughout the New Testament, right? It's, it's not a secret that the Christians are going to be persecuted. They're told ahead of time that this is something that you should look forward to, not look forward to as in anticipate necessarily, but that um, is, is coming and you should expect. So we do have this passage in Matthew 5, 10 through 12 uh, in the Beatitudes where Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So he says there, again, they persecuted prophets before you. They're going to continue to persecute you, and you're going to be blessed for it. First uh, Peter is all about persecution, right? In First Peter 2, 21 through 23, Peter says... 
for to this you have been called. This is your, your purpose in life, to, to suffer, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And then uh, the, from the, the mouth of Jesus and the, the pen of John, again, the, the man who discipled the two men that we're going to be looking at today, in John fifteen nineteen through 20, it says, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the world that I said, the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep your word also. So no surprise that the Christians were to be persecuted. And we're going to get into this time frame, into this age where they're actually experiencing a, a greater deal of that persecution. But before we get there, I want to look at where this persecution is coming from. Uh, we talked about how um, Jesus was persecuted, Stephen, uh, Philip, these other disciples, they were persecuted. And a lot of that persecution was uh, coming from Rome. Remember in, in Acts, uh, Acts chapter 4, um, it says that, um, oh, what does it say? Let me see. Acts, I'll just read it. Acts four twenty-seven through 28. talks about how this persecution is from men as well as from... Uh, the divine hand of God through his providence. So Acts 4.27 says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And so there we see Herod and Pontius Pilate both called out specifically by name that they were... Um, there, that this persecution was taking place at their hands. And so um, I want to look at how this persecution progressed throughout the Roman Empire. Um, but can somebody briefly explain why Christianity in particular was a, a prime target for persecution under the Roman Empire? Andy. So the, the Romans were pagan. They had a, a multitude of gods. Mm -hmm. And the early Christians were called atheists because they wouldn't um, offer, I guess it was incense, to, uh, to the Caesar. Yeah. So the Christians were basically uh, anti-social in, in their eyes, I guess is the right word. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, in its pursuit to, to conquer and control this vast amount of land, uh, Rome would come in and they would, um, they would permit people to continue to practice their own religious practices as long as they would take and incorporate Caesar into their worship somehow. And so they weren't trying to impose on these different regions, these different areas, one religion. They just wanted them to um, be... Um, be okay with Caesar as their one religion. So it's a, a syncretistic type religion, taking some and, and borrowing from another and making them, um, like Andy said, uh, give a, a little bit of worship to Caesar to acknowledge him as 
some sort of deity. And it's the exclusive claims of Christianity that conflicted with this pagan syncretism because Christians said, no, we're only going to worship Jesus. Jesus alone is God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And we're not to, to worship anybody else or ascribe praise to anybody else. And so that um, exclusivism from Christianity kind of butted up against uh, the demands of Rome. And though Christianity wasn't a, a loud, violent uprising, it was a, a silent rebuke against Rome, and it was a threat to Rome and their empire and what they were trying to accomplish in bringing all these different uh, groups and countries and backgrounds together uh, by acknowledging Caesar as Lord. And as Christianity started to be distinguished from Judaism, and people started to realize, okay, well, these two things are not the same thing, uh, Christianity started to be viewed as uh, some kind of secret sect. Um, and gain a, a reputation as being incestuous because they had these love feasts or um, as being um, cannibalistic because they ate the Lord's Supper. And they were definitely seen as anti-Caesar. And um, as Andy mentioned, they were known as atheists because they didn't recognize the, the Roman gods. They didn't recognize Caesar as God, so they were called atheists. Atheist means against God. And that's the, the kind of ironic term that Christianity developed for itself from Rome. Um, and I want to go through and look at the, the different emperors, some of the different emperors, and see how this persecution kind of advanced. We're going to go through really quickly and look at these and uh, just look at how quickly this persecution advanced. So Nero, who reigned from 54 to 68, um, it was under his reign that Christian persecution was organized by the Roman state that Romans actually started to organize that persecution themselves. Domitian, he reigned from 81 to 96, and he was known as a, a ruthless but efficient autocrat. And his first act as emperor was to um, deify his brother Titus, to set him up as God and to demand worship from uh, the people towards his brother. And he gave himself the title of Dominus et Deus, which means Lord and God. And that was uh, Domitian. Now, Trajan reigned from 98 to 117. And uh, we have a, a kind of back and forth of um, commentary between Trajan and, and Pliny the Younger. They're trying to figure out what to do with these Christians and the extent to which they can and should persecute the Christians. And uh, Trajan told Pliny the Younger that no Christians were to be sought out but if somebody reported that a certain individual was a Christian and he refused to recant after being given an opportunity to recant three different times, then he was to be punished. And for foreigners, that meant that they were to be executed. They were to be put to death if they didn't recant. Uh, but for citizens of uh, the Roman Empire, they were to be sent to Rome so that they could be put on trial. And it's during Trajan's reign that uh, Ignatius is martyred. Next we see an Antoninus Pius, um, who reigned from 138 to 161. And this is the, the emperor who's reigning during Polycarp's death. Uh, next person that we want to look at is Marcus Aurelius. He's a more popular figure. And uh, he was known for blaming the Christians for all kinds of stuff. He blamed them for uh, natural disasters as well as man-made um, calamities that would take place, and uh, he said that all that was due to the rise of Christianity, and he called for, he openly called for the death of 
Christians, and he was the one who was responsible for the death of Justin Martyr, um, who's a, a contemporary of uh, Polycarp, who we're going to be looking at. And then Decius reigned from 249 to 251, a, a short reign, but he was pretty impactful in that he issued an edict demanding that at least an annual offering of sacrifice to the Roman gods and the emperor um, be made. And he called for these certificates to be issued as proof of compliancy. So if you didn't have a certificate that said that you had offered incense of praise to, to Caesar, then you could be in uh, you could be in trouble. You could be persecuted and put to death. So you think that a, a vax mandate's a, a scary thing. Um, that would have been much more scary than even a, a vaccination mandate or vaccination passport. That same kind of principle that you need to you know, show me your papers or you're going to be put to death if you don't say that you've offered praise and incense and worship to Caesar. Uh, Diocletian's the last one that we're going to look at today. Um, and he reigned from 284 to 305, and he issued edicts calling for the persecution of Christians, for the cessation of meetings, for the destruction of churches, and for the burning of scriptures. So he was a, an evil, wicked man who hated Christianity, and he came out, he was the, the leader of the Roman Empire, and uh, he wasn't hiding the fact that it was very uh, encouraged to kill Christians and to destroy uh, any of their history and prevent them from preaching the gospel. So that's just a, a brief overview of some of the Roman emperors. Um, we're going to get in and look at Ignatius specifically, again, who reigned or who um, was killed during the reign of Trajan. And uh, Emperor Trajan, while he was in Antioch, where uh, Ignatius served, he instructed Ignatius to offer some sacrifice to idols. And he said, if you offer sacrifices to these idols, then I'll take and I'll, I'll make you a senator. I'll exalt you in this governmental system. And despite these many threats, Ignatius wouldn't comply and he was sentenced to death in Rome. So we'll take a look at this man, Ignatius. And uh, Ignatius was alive from around 50 to 108 AD. Uh, there's uh, a little bit of uh, difference of opinion and as to when he died. He, again, died sometime during the reign of Trajan, so from 98 to 110. But Eusebius dates his death to 107 to 108, so we'll just use that, that date of 108. And he was the, the bishop of Antioch, Syria. Is that a familiar city to us, Antioch? Syria. We read about that in, in Scripture a little bit, don't we? Um, in fact, let's go ahead and open up to Acts 11 and see if we can learn a little, little bit about this city. Will somebody read Acts 11, 19 through 26? Who's got that for us? You got it. All right. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over... Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. 
When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. All right, so Antioch was kind of home base for the Christians. Antioch is where Barnabas and Saul set out, or Paul set off on their first missionary journey. Um, it was there that they were first called Christians. This is a, a pretty important city. Uh, later on in Acts 15, we see that they're the ones who called for the, the meeting of the, the Jerusalem Council to try to figure out what does it mean to, to be a Christian? Do you have to be a Jew first, or um, can you just embrace Christ alone? And then um, I have several references there about how focused they were on missions. They were um, either the, the launching point or the return point for all of Paul's missionary journeys. And so you can read about that in uh, Acts 12, 25 through 13, 1, or 14, 26, 15, 36 through 40, and 18, 22 through 23. Antioch is a, a pretty important city in Scripture. And this is where Ignatius is now bishop. He's bishop of Antioch, um, leading the, the church that's there. And uh, Ignatius wrote seven different letters that we have today. He wrote a letter to the Ephesians, to the Magnatians, to the Trillians, the Romans, Philadelphians, Smyrnans. Um, and then he wrote one personal letter to Polycarp. Again, the, the other man that we're going to be looking at here momentarily. And these letters give us a, a lot of insight, not only into Ignatius, but also into the, the early church and how the early church functioned and uh, some of the, the ideas and thoughts of the early church. There are a, a lot of misconceptions about the early church, a lot of ideas that these were just a bunch of uneducated men who didn't really know what they were doing. They were trying to, uh, they were scrambling and just stumbling through trying to develop their own uh, theology, their own Christology, uh, their, their own canon that they didn't really know. The canon wasn't developed until the, the fourth century. Uh, again, these are misconceptions about Christianity that uh, Ignatius's seven letters kind of help us to dispel a little bit. Uh, from looking at these seven letters, it would appear that uh, Ignatius had a, he was at least aware of Matthew and Romans, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Timothy, First Thessalonians, Hebrews, and First John, and that makes up nearly half of our New Testament, which is not bad considering that he died again in 108 or around 108 A.D. And all these letters were to these different cities, which weren't centrally located, and they had to circulate to get around. And yet, by this point, Ignatius um, had not only seen and read them, but he was familiar enough with them to um, allude to or quote from them in, in his writings and give the impression that he was at least familiar with them. So uh, that gives us a, a good understanding of the fact that the canon was um, developing much earlier than what secular historians will, will claim. Uh, Ignatius also had a, a very high Christology. He thought a lot about Christ and he had a, a good understanding, good doctrine of who Jesus is. Um, I have a, a quote here from one of his letters to Smyrna. In Smyrna 1, 
he says regarding our Lord, you are absolutely convinced that on the human side, he was actually sprung from David's line, son of God, according to God's will and power, actually born of a virgin, baptized by John, that all righteousness might be fulfilled by him, and actually crucified for us in the flesh under Pontius Pilate and Herod the Tetrarch. He genuinely suffered and he genuinely raised himself. Um, I'm sure that you can pick up different uh, scriptures even within there. Um, Romans 1 right there talking about how he sprung forth from David's line. Romans 1 talks about how according to the flesh he was the son of David. Um, and then he's focusing on the fact that he was uh, actually crucified in the flesh. That he genuinely suffered. He genuinely raised again, uh, which are themes that are continually attacked even to this day. And people say, well, those were just later uh, adaptations um, that Christianity kind of, again, developed. They were scrambling and stumbling, and they were making this stuff up. Uh, no, Ignatius is teaching this <clears throat> plainly and clearly uh, in the first and second century. In Magnesians 1, he says, above all, I want them to confess the union of Jesus with the Father. Um, so Tertullian is um, credited with coming up with the, the name Trinity. He definitely didn't come up with the doctrine Trinity. That was um, something that was, even before Ignatius, we can find it in, in Scripture, but early church history attests to it as well. And then uh, in his letter to Polycarp, in chapter 3, he says, Be on the alert for him who is above all time, the timeless, the unseen, the one who became visible for our sakes, who was beyond touch and passion, yet who for our sakes became subject to suffering and enduring everything for us. That is a, a super high Christology. It was just a, a couple of weeks ago that we were talking about open deism, people who would deny this very thing, and they would say, well, God isn't timeless, that God is subject somehow to time, that he is learning, he is growing. Uh, Ignatius absolutely didn't believe that. Um, he thought God is He's the timeless one, the unseen one, the one who is above time. That is the, the God of Scripture. That's the God that we worship. And um, just a, a reminder, we, um, we believe that Scripture is our, our sole infallible uh, source of authority. Um, church history just kind of aids us in being able to see what the, the people that came before us believed. It's not... Um, authoritative. It's not infallible, but it's nice to see that people even that early on were believing some of the same things that we believe even today. Um, Ignatius, in having his high Christology, I think as um, a, a means to drive this high Christology, like we see throughout much of church history, it was driven there because of a need to defend against false teaching. That's where a lot of our, our church councils come from. That's where a lot of our, our documents and writing come from because other people come along and they'll have some false claim against Christianity. And Ignatius um, was right there to, to fight against this false teaching. We see him fighting against uh, docetism and, and proto-Gnostic teachings. We've been learning a little bit about that recently in Colossians, uh, this idea that Jesus didn't have a body of flesh that people thought that the flesh was evil or bad. Um, you can read about that a lot in, in 1 John. Um, but Ignatius was teaching against that. He says in Smyrna chapter 5, What good does anyone do by praising me and then reviling my Lord by refusing to acknowledge that he carried around live flesh? He who de denies this has completely disavowed him and carries a corpse around. So he was a, a little bit snarky, a little bit sarcastic too. I, I kind of like that about him because 
I'm a little bit snarky sometimes. I shouldn't be, but <laughs> I, I like to see it in other people sometimes. Um, but he was clearly teaching that, yes, Jesus had a, a body of flesh. Um, he also fought against the, the false teaching of Judaism. Uh, Judaism is this idea that you have to first become a Jew before you can become a Christian. Uh, Paul teaches against this in Galatians very uh, clearly. And then in, again, back in uh, Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council, which took place at Antioch, they were dealing with this same issue. And Ignatius says in Magnesians 8, do not be led astray by wrong views or outmoded tales that count for nothing. For if we still go on observing Judaism, we admit that we never received grace. And so he was actively involved in not only lifting up and, and propping up this correct understanding of Jesus, but teaching against these negative false views of Christ as well. Um, he, he did get pretty feisty. Um, he says um, in uh, one of his letters, it's the letter to Smyrna, he says, it's not as some unbelievers say that his passion was a sham. It's they who are a sham. So he's, uh, he kind of reminds me of Peter, right, who has a tendency to talk back, or Martin Luther, who really has a, a tendency to talk back, um, or that second grader who just says, yeah, I know you are, but, but what am I type of thing, right? Uh, Jeremy was messing with Andy during our praise team practice and said, uh, oh, you're just a girl because of the music that he liked. <laughs> and uh, Andy said, yeah, yeah so what? Or, or something to that effect. Um, he said he likes Michael <laughs> <laughs> That crosses a line. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Well, that's kind of the, the feel that I get from Ignatius. He's uh, kind of feisty. He's, he's okay with uh, putting people in their place a little bit. Um, another uh, notable fact about Ignatius is that he had a, a high view of, of church leadership, which wasn't always the, the case. Um, here, listen to this quote from Smyrna 8 and, and tell me what you think about it. He says... You should all follow the bishop as Jesus Christ did the Father. Follow, too, the presbyter as you would the apostles, and respect the deacons as you would God's law. Nobody must do anything that has to do with the church without the bishop's approval. You should regard the, the Eucharist as valid, which is celebrated either by the bishop or by someone he authorizes. Where the bishop is present... There let the congregation gather, just as where Jesus Christ is, there is a Catholic church. Without the bishop's supervision, no baptisms or love feasts are permitted. On the other hand, whatever he approves pleases God as well. you have any thoughts on that quote? I like to, I like to respect the deacons as you would God's. <laughs> <laughs> Rex likes that. That should be in our doctrine. Put in the Bible. All right. Do I do I have a motion? <laughs> Any other thoughts? Is that a is that good? Is that bad? Are we indifferent about that? The Catholic Church is just the is the church universal. It's all believers, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not the Roman Catholic Church. Yeah, he's talking about the universal church there. Right. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, a little bit, right? Yeah, just blindly follow the bishop, whatever he says. Yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah, he makes that, that distinction. Nice. Yeah. Um, here I have a, a quote here from Earl Cairns. He says that he was the first to place the office of bishop in contrast with the office of the presbyter, which would be just elders, and to subordinate the presbyters or elders to the monarchical bishop and to the members of the church to both. The hierarchy of authority in the church is, according to him, bishop, then presbyter, and deacon. However, Ignatius did not exalt the bishop of Rome as superior to other bishops, even though he was the first to use the word Catholic. Um, so, yeah, he's the, the first to do it. and um, I think he's definitely a, a little bit unbalanced in how he's pointing this out, that you should follow the bishop as Jesus Christ did the Father, follow to the presbyters as you would the apostles, respect the deacons as you would God's law. Um, it's a little unbalanced. Oh, um, yeah. That next sentence, nobody must do anything that has to do with the church without the bishop's approval. Uh-huh. That's way too much pressure for any human being. Absolutely. Please do things. Yes. <laughs> and don't tell me everything. Just do it. <laughs> yep. Yeah, like I said, it is quite quite unbalanced. Um, the, the sentiment, I think, is, is good, but he takes it a little bit too far. And we can see the same thing in this next quote, Magnesians 3. He says, it is not right to presume on the youthfulness of your bishop. That's, that's good. Uh, but then he goes on and he says, you ought to respect him as fully as you respect the authority of God the Father. Um, that's, that's not good. God is in a class all his own, and uh, nobody should be compared to him in that kind of way. Um, but despite that, um, we do have this, this quote in Romans for his Romans, his letter to the Romans, chapter 4. He says, I do not give you orders like Peter and Paul. They were apostles. I am a convict. Uh, so again, that same principle that we talked about last week, that he didn't consider himself to be an apostle. Uh, the early church recognized that the apostles, they were in a, a separate class. We saw that even in that last quote, that you were to respect the presbyters as the apostles, even though that's a, a skewed view. Um, we can see that they didn't recognize themselves as being inspired in that kind of apostolic sense. All right, there's also some weird stuff that we see in Ignatius. Um, I thought I would share a little bit of that with you. Um, he says in Smyrna 6, let no one be misled. Heavenly beings, the splendor of angels and principalities, visible and invisible, if they fail to believe in Christ's blood, they too are doomed. Let him accept it who can. Uh, we have no teaching in scripture that would lead us to believe that the angels can be redeemed, that um, they are, again, in a, a separate class, and the blood of Christ doesn't cover them. So that's a little bit weird. We actually have an explicit statement to the contrary. That yes. says it is not angels whom he helps in mm -hmm. Hebrews 2. Yeah, they are but, ministering spirits for, yeah. for those that he does help. All right, and then Smyrna 7, uh, he's warning people against people like us. He says that they refuse to admit that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ, who suffered for our sins, and which, in his goodness, the Father raised. So, uh, he was a, what would later come to be called a, a transubstantiationist, that the, the elements of the Lord's Supper, the bread and the blood, actually become the literal body and blood of Christ. Um, so, a lot of proto-Roman Catholic type teachings here, and that's just going to continue to develop 
that skewed view of uh, church leadership is going to continue to get worse and worse throughout time. Uh, a lot of good things that we see in Ignatius, also some weird stuff. As with most, most of the church fathers, it's kind of hit and miss. Yeah, Brett? Is that Eucharist that, that means the body and the Lord's Yeah. It is a weird word. Yep. <laughs> All right. Uh, and then we get into uh, his martyrdom, Ignatius's martyrdom, which is mostly found in his epistle to the Romans because he was traveling to Rome again from Athens in order to be martyred. And so he was writing ahead of time to this church um, in preparation for being there. And he says in Romans 1 that... It is as a prisoner for Christ Jesus that I hope to greet you. If indeed it be his will that I should deserve to meet my end, things are off to a good start. May I have the good fortune to meet my fate without interference. What I fear is your generosity, which may prove detrimental to me. For you can easily do what you want to, whereas it is hard for me to go to God unless you let me alone. Let me be fodder for wild beasts. This is how I can get to God. So he was worried they were going to rescue him from his pending martyrdom, and he was letting them know that he was prepared and he was ready to to go before the wild beasts and to uh, be killed for his faith. He says in Romans 5, uh, all the way from Syria to Rome, I am fighting with wild beasts by land and by sea, night and day, chained as I am, to ten leopards, I mean to a detachment of soldiers, who only get worse the better that you treat them. But by their injustices I am becoming a better disciple, though not for that reason I am acquitted. What a thrill I have, what a thrill I shall have from the wild beasts that are ready for me. I hope they will make short work of me. May nothing seen or unseen begrudge me, making my way to Jesus Christ, come fire, cross, battling with wild beasts, wrenching of bones, mangling of limbs, crushing of my whole body, cruel tortures of the devil, only let me get to Jesus Christ. That's a, a good sentiment. That's a, a good heart. So for all the, the weird stuff that he says, uh, he had a, a love for Jesus and a desire for Jesus. He talked about him not as a, a character in a book, but as a real man who he was ready to die for and willing to die for. And then uh, we see some of that same love come through for uh, Polycarp, his, his friend. In his letter to Polycarp, chapter 2, he says, Bound as I am with chains that you kissed, I give my whole self for you, cheap sacrifice though it is. And Polycarp, again, he was a, a disciple of John as well, uh, along with Ignatius. And it's likely that he also, Polycarp also studied under Ignatius as well. And it's Polycarp who handed the delivery, handled the delivery of Ignatius's other six letters. He took them from uh, Ignatius and delivered them to the, the other six churches that he had written them to. So that's a brief overview on Ignatius. Any thoughts or questions on him before we move on to Polycarp? Yeah. Uh, before. Oh, when did the Great Apostasy happen? Is that, I, I don't know. What are you talking, what is the Great Apostasy? If your neighbor asks you if Ignatius was a part of the Great Apostasy. Oh, that apostasy. Great Apostasy. I was thinking Catholic. Um, 
Yeah, there, there was no great apostasy according to Mormonism, right? That, um, well, according to Mormonism, there was, but yes. according to uh, biblical Christianity and biblical history, there wasn't because Jesus Christ built his church upon the rock, the, the statement that Peter made that uh, he is the, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he says, I build my church upon this rock and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Uh, heaven and earth are going to pass away, but my words will never pass away. And so Mormonism says, well, the, the church kind of fell off into great apostasy and there was never a, a true church around. Um, we're always kind of looking for that, that golden thread of the church being exactly as we think it should be um, all throughout history, all throughout the ages. And we're not going to see that. We see, a, we see some truth in some people and some apostasy in some people. Truth and error is uh, always going to be present. You want to so add to that? Weird stuff doesn't make him apostate. Uh, I think he was definitely a, a Christian. He just was a Christian who had some weird beliefs. He was a Christian based upon his. He can be a Christian and have weird beliefs. Yeah. <laughs> Jerry's over there raising his hand, so he must agree. <laughs> Absolutely can. Uh, if not, we would all be in a, a world of trouble, I'm sure. Yeah. Jerry. Yeah, again, he was a. And it's because we have the, the infallible word of God that we're able to point to that and say, well, that stuff is weird, right? Because we have a standard that we can point to outside of that. And we have to remember that he was a, a faithful apologist, that he did have these false teachings that were coming into his church, and he was trying to prepare his people by teaching against them. So he had a specific uh, thing that he was teaching to and a specific context in which he was writing. So that's a good reminder to remember those things. Thank you. That's what I should have said. <laughs> no, that's good. Yeah, you did. <laughs> All right, well, let's look at Polycarp. Uh, Polycarp was around from 69 AD to 155 AD, and he was the bishop of Smyrna. Is that a familiar city to us? Smyrna is one of the, the seven churches that Jesus wrote a letter to in the book of Revelation. Um, I have this 
clip here from Revelation chapter 2, this letter that Jesus wrote to Smyrna, and it's, uh, it's kind of applicable to, to Polycarp himself. It says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The first and the last, who was dead and who has come to life, says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, so that you will be tested, and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto death, until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. And Polycarp, being a, a bishop in that church, would certainly have access to this letter. And he himself was um, going to face death, uh, a death under uh, the, the Roman Empire, as we mentioned before, under Antin Antinius Pius. Um, Polycarp wrote an epistle to the Philippians, and we also have an account of his martyrdom in uh, a separate work. His uh, letter to the Philippians is probably made up of a, a couple of letters that he sent them, kind of patchworked together. And uh, this letter that um, addresses his, um, his martyrdom is the oldest account of a point-by-point -point chronicle of a martyrdom that's outside of the New Testament. Um, also in his letter to the, the Philippians, he's addressing an elder there who had embezzled some money. So he's trying to encourage these people, these Philippians, to continue to live out their faith. And then he's talking about this man who had embezzled some money and how they ought to deal with that and address him. And um, we see oftentimes that Polycarp is accused of being unoriginal. People say, well, he didn't really have many original things to say. He just uh, kind of picked up from different New Testament writers and Old Testament writers, and he, he plagiarized them. He, he ripped them off. Um, listen to this quote from Philippians 1 and uh, see if you can hear any uh, scripture quotations or allusions in here. Philippians 1, he says, because the strong root of your faith, spoken of in days long gone by, endures even until now, and brings forth fruit of our Lord Jesus Christ, who for our sins suffered even unto death, but whom God raised from the dead, having loosed the bands of the grave, in whom, though now you see him not, you believe, and believing, rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, into which joy many desire to enter, knowing that by grace you are saved, not of works, but by the will of God through Jesus Christ. So, um, hopefully you can see a, a couple of allusions to, to Scripture in there. He was, again, accused of being unoriginal. However, uh, novelty shouldn't be viewed with skepticism in the area of theology. Novelty is not a good thing when you're speaking about theology, which is kind of ironic because nowadays we have... Uh, doctorate programs that require you to write a doctorate thesis that is new and novel in some way in order to receive your doctorate so you can go on and teach theology to, to other people. Uh, but that's not a good way to approach scripture, the unchanging truth of God's word. 
And unoriginal passer is a, a strength, not a flaw. So when people accuse Polycarp of being unoriginal, I think that's a, a good thing. That's speaking to the, the high view that he himself had of scripture. All right. Yeah, yeah, he quotes First Peter a lot. Um, he really likes First Peter. So why? Why? So do I. Oh, so do you. <laughs> I heard so why. Oh, we already talked about how First Peter talks about suffering, but yes, First Peter is great. All right, um, here's a, another quote from uh, Philippians 3. He says, For neither I nor any other such one can come up to the wisdom of the blessed and glorified Paul, he, when among you, accurately and steadfastly taught the word of truth in the presence of those who were then alive. So again, there we see a, a recognition of the apostles of, as being in a class that is unique to them. And he's talking to a, a different generation. He's writing to the same church at Philippi, but he's referencing uh, how Paul wrote to them before, to those who were alive then. So uh, he's writing to the, the next generation of Philippians. Uh, at that church. All right, and he was mentally prepared for his martyrdom ahead of time, which is where we need to be. Um, We don't come to that point in that moment, not just martyrdom, but any kind of pain or suffering. Um, It's not when some kind of tragedy happens in your life that you need to try to get your theology figured out and figure out, well, is God sovereign or not? We need to have that figured out beforehand ahead of time so that um, when that day, then that trial comes, we can know that God is in control. And he was definitely in that kind of state. He was mentally prepared for his martyrdom. Uh, listen to this quote from uh, Philippians 8. He says, Let us continually preserve in our hope and the earnest of our righteousness, which is Jesus Christ. Let us then be imitators of his patience. And if we suffer for his name's sake, let us glorify him. For he has set this example in himself. And we have believed that such is the case. Again, another allusion to First Peter. Uh, he realizes that we need to be prepared to suffer, prepared for persecution. And I just want to finish up the next few minutes by reading a, a couple of chapters from his, the, the account of his martyrdom. Um, it's a, a pretty remarkable account. You should read it if you are able to, to find it and find some time to read it. It is a little bit sensationalized, as are a lot of the things in the early, early church, but it's a, a good read, and I'm going to share a little bit of it with you. So in the martyrdom of Polycarp, uh, chapter 9, it says, As Polycarp was being taken into the arena, a voice came to him from heaven, Be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. No one saw who had spoken, but our brothers who were there heard the voice. When the crowd heard that Polycarp had been captured, there was an uproar. The proconsul asked him whether he was Polycarp. On hearing that he was, he tried to persuade him to apostatize, saying, Have respect for your old age. Swear by the fortune of Caesar. Repent and say, Down with the atheists. Again, the Christians, right? That's what they were called. Polycarp looked grimly at the wicked heathen multitude in the stadium, and gesturing toward them, he said, Down with the atheists. Swear, said urged the pro-council, reproach Christ and I will set you free. 
86 years I have served him, Polycarp declared, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? So just to clarify, he wasn't uh, denouncing Christ. He was saying, no, down with you atheists, uh, gesturing towards those who were the, the wicked, true atheists who denied the one true God. And then it goes on in chapter 11 and says, I have wild animals here, the proconsul said. I will throw you to them if you do not repent. Call them, Polycarp replied. It is unthinkable for me to repent from what is good to turn to what is evil. I will be glad, though, to be changed from evil to righteousness. Amen. If you despise the animals, I will have you burned. You threaten me with fire, which burns for an hour and is then extinguished. But you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. Uh, yeah, Polycarp, he had some intestinal fortitude, didn't he? Uh, that was a, a man of courage. Um, and it is definitely encouraging. We need to uh, aspire to that kind of boldness and to being willing to, to speak up for, for our Lord and for, for truth. Um, any thoughts or questions on Polycarp? In Rome. Mm-hmm. Yep. And he, he was burned to death. Um, so they threatened him with wild beasts, but he was ultimately burned. And um, there's a whole section in that letter about how miraculous that was, how um, there was like a glowing arch of fire that went up around his head and he smelled like bread and um, he, he wouldn't burn. And so uh, the soldiers pierced him and his blood put out all the fire and he died by being pierced while in a fire after avoiding the, the wild beast. So I think he was burned to death, but it's kind of hard to tell with that <laughs> wild story. <laughs> burned to death or uh, died at the, the end of a sword. I'm not sure. <laughs> All right, well, um, there are a couple of quotes that I want to share. Two of my favorite quotes that I found in uh, my study of Ignatius and Polycarp. Um, we'll, we'll end with those. Uh, this one from Ignatius in Romans 3 says, the greatness of Christianity lies in its being hated by the world, not in its being convincing to it. Uh, we're, we're not able to convince the world of a, a truth that only God can draw these people to. God is the, the sovereign one who is able to open up people's eyes and um, to draw them to himself, to give them true life. And we're just responsible to, to preach the gospel. And we're going to be hated for it. We're told, like Brett mentioned, that in this world you will have trouble. Uh, the world is going to hate you, but Jesus said, I have overcome the world. Real quick, it just reminds me of one of the songs that we sing, um, In the Valley. Mm-hmm. Let me learn that my losses are my gain. To be broken is to heal. Amen. Uh, that the cross precedes the crown. And I mean, all these things are paradoxical, right? But our greatness is in our being hated by the world, which is so backwards from what we typically think. Yep. Amen. All right, and then this quote from Polycarp, Philippians 3, he says, He that has love is far from all sin. Uh, It's a simple yet profound idea that if we love people, then 
and truly love people with the love of Christ, and we're going to be far from, from all sin. Um, something that we should seek to embody as well. And then, uh, lastly, um, from 2 Timothy 3, uh, this is Paul writing, and he says in verses 10 through 12, Now you followed my teachings, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecution, and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That doesn't mean we're going to be persecuted like Ignatius or Polycarp. We're not under wicked men like um, these Roman emperors that we looked at. But if we're truly Christians and we're going to live a, a Christian life that is going to draw some sort of persecution from our friends, from our family, from our coworkers, from our employers, um, we're going to face that persecution and we need to be prepared for it. We need to be ready, just as Polycarp was ready for his impending martyrdom. We need to be ready for whatever persecution comes our way ahead of time and be willing and ready to, to stand up and proclaim the name of Christ boldly and proudly. All right, let's pray, and we'll take some time before the second service. God, we thank you again for these people, for the great uh, encouragement that they are to, to our faith and we pray that you would give us the same kind of strength and uh, fortitude that we would be uh, bold and we'd be willing and ready to, to stand up for you. We would be prepared to speak your truth in love uh, no matter the cost. God, thank you for this church body, for uh, all the, the strong, faithful men and women that you brought here, and I pray that we would be a, a light in this dark world. I pray this in your name. Amen.